Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers from Inside Scientific. Inside Scientific is the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today, we are joined by Dr. John Lighton and Dr. Jennifer Teske. John is president and chief scientist at Sable Systems International, a company known for their metabolic phenotyping systems. Jennifer is an associate professor in the Department of Nutritional Science at the University of Arizona. They are here to discuss the relevance of high bandwidth metabolic measurements synchronized with intake and other behavioral data. Let's jump in. Here is our first question. So, can you clarify again why measuring water vapor may be a better option than removing it? And maybe, John, you could lead us on this one. Sure. Well, the traditional way of um, compensating for the dilution effect of water vapor is simply to remove the water vapor. The problem with that is that there's no method of removing water vapor which is ideally optimal. Chemical approaches tend to interact with CO2. They cause waste disposal issues. They tend to become inefficient over time. They require frequent changes and so on. The thermal approaches do not, in fact, remove water vapor. They take it down to a level of around about 700 pascals, which is still very significant. And they fail to actually have any effect whatsoever on air streams where the relative humidity at typical room temperature is below about 25%. So at that point, they become completely ineffective. And if you measure water vapor, on the other hand, you always know precisely how much there is. And then using barometric pressure as well and Dalton's um, law of partial pressures, you can mathematically compensate for the dilution effect of water vapor. Now, the nice thing about this is that the water vapor analyzer has negligible internal volume, unlike a uh, scrubber system. And so consequently, this means that you can get much more rapid response. This allows you to have very, very rapid gas analysis, which allows you to have very fast cycle times and very fast responses to metabolic signals, which is, you know, I think one of the primary components of metabolic phenotyping systems that have historically been pretty much lacking. Those are the reasons that there's one additional thing too, and that is that if you're uh, measuring water vapor, then you have an additional channel of data regarding the whole animal water vapor output. And then that allows you, for example, to calculate metabolic water production. Excellent. A question, uh, Jen, for you. What other components of total energy expenditure need to be recognized? Um, in other words, are there other sources that you feel need to be investigated as it pertains to calculating total energy expenditure? Oh, certainly. So, you know, the, of the components that I didn't, that are, you know, that contributed to total energy expenditure, I didn't show the energy expenditure during, you know, IBAT, interscapular brown adipose tissue that we know increases body temperature. I didn't show diet-induced thermogenesis. But I know those data are in my files, and I could tease out, I could go back and look at them. And, you know, it's something that I think is important and that we really want to do as well. Energy expenditure during brown adipose tissue, activation, energy expenditure in response to meals. Okay. All right. John, do you have, in your practice in support of different labs, do you see, you know, this question coming up and is there, you know, anything additional you can add or? Well, as, as Jen pointed out, I mean, having the deep data field means that you have enormous amounts of data that you can sift through, try different analytical techniques and what have you on. And Certainly, the, the business of disentangling physical activity from diet-induced thermogenesis from, for example, bat activation um, is 
complex and very interesting. And you, to do that kind of thing, you absolutely need the temporal resolution and fast response in order to be able to dissect the, the energy expenditure of the animal into its individual components. And this is a research program that is ongoing. I have some collaborators in the, in the scientific field. Okay. And we're working together on some of these questions. Excellent. Okay, thanks to both of you for your answers there. Next question, and again, I think, I'll, Jen, perhaps you could go first on this one because it came in during your talk. Have you experienced any data logging or data transfer issues related to the telemetry implants and the infrared beam systems or just any interference in general? You know, actually, it's a good question because I've used several types of calorimetry companies. And with each of those companies, I was worried about losing data by placing that you know, receiver for data science for the telemetry under each chamber. I was worried that it would interfere with the infrared arrays. And luckily, every time we validated and tested, we've had no problems. So I really feel confident that I can put that receiver right under the cage and it's not going to interfere with physical activity, which most, a lot of times, is one of my primary endpoints. Perfect. So no, in your experience, yeah, no issues, John, in your experience, and maybe even extend this to other instrumentation, because we've had some other questions come in about, you know, just in general integration of technologies. And maybe I'm thinking some of these indicate at some behavioral things like video tracking. Again, any, anything in your experience that you can help our audience with as far as making sure that uh, systems do not interfere or, yeah, go ahead. So as far as telemetry is concerned, I mean, the, the obvious thing is that we need to keep any interference coming from the beam brake arrays and the rest of the equipment to a minimum in order to avoid any interference. At the same time, especially with active telemetry systems, you have to be sure that the active telemetry system, like the powered bases, are not interfering with the measurements being made by the system. And of course, our, uh, our systems are very extensively tested. Uh, for CE compliance and what have you, and they are extremely quiet in radio frequencies and are virtually immune to any interference. So there's no cross-interference between our systems and telemetry bases. Now, when it comes to um, integrating with other systems, for example, treadmills or video analysis systems and what have you, the pull mode is extraordinarily versatile because this gives you the capability to transform almost any environment into a really accurate, fast-response metabolic measurement environment. So to this end, we are forming a variety of alliances with some very well-known metabolic, uh, sorry, from behavioral phenotyping companies. And it's a bit premature to talk about those in detail right now, mm -hmm. but there are going to be some very exciting developments down the road, which um, I'd be um, certainly interested to convey to people at the right time. Perfect. But again, the, the, the pull mode and the high flow rate greatly facilitate the integration of diverse systems into the Promethean system. Excellent. Okay. Questions come in from Michael. He, he'd like you, John, to comment on the precision of legacy O2 sensors. Sure. So basically, three different types of O2 sensors in common use that have enough resolution to be useful for you know experimental animal metabolic phenotyping. Those are primarily paramagnetic zirconia cell and fuel cell. So the zirconia cell is a, is a nice old technology. It requires very high temperature electrodes. And the, the zirconia cell itself has to be maintained at about 400 degrees C. It is covered with a porous metal 
film, which is attacked by water vapor. So water vapor is really not a feasible thing to have in the presence of the zirconia cell. And it's also very noisy comparatively. So it is very difficult to use for really precise O2 measurements close to ambient values. Okay. Paramagnetic sensors are very good. They can be very accurate, but again, the noise problem is there. And also water vapor is diamagnetic as opposed to oxygen's paramagnetic property. And so the water vapor seriously interferes with the oxygen signal, so you really can't use those in the presence of water vapor either. Fuel cells are extremely uh, accurate and precise, and in our hands, we have developed proprietary techniques which allow them to be extended down to extraordinarily low concentration differences and very, very rapid response. Excellent. So there are other systems out there for measuring oxygen. Uh, there are laser systems and what have you, but those are far too noisy to even consider for metabolic phenotyping of burdens. Okay. Well, that's, I'm sure that uh, answers Michael's curiosity on it. And I've got a second part to his question here that talks about detecting differences in two group sizes, say, by to the extreme of 10 to 20% difference in energy expenditure between the two groups. So if someone were to come to you and say, that's the magnitude of change I'm looking to detect, what would you have any specific recommendations on the type of system or the approach to the study design? Well, 10 to 20% is very large. So I, I don't think that there'd be any particular problem there at all. That the, the N required for an effect of that size is actually relatively small uh, mm -hmm. without you know, doing the calculations in my head right now. But that is very, very easily detectable. In general, I'm getting a lot of comments about the extremely high repeatability of the data acquired with the system. So, so if, there is a, if, there, if there is a robust difference, it will, without a doubt, be detected. Excellent. Perfect. Okay. Are there any real practical advantages to pull rather than push mode systems? Well, yeah, I've been talking about pull and push mode, but I guess I need to clarify a bit. So push mode is where you are measuring the flow rate pushed into a chamber, and then you are measuring the gas concentrations coming out of the chamber. To do this, you really have to have a completely sealed chamber. Pull mode, you are measuring the um, airstream the flow rate pulled from the chamber, and obviously, in that case, you cannot have a sealed chamber without uh, some kind of inlet. And as long as you are pulling out all of the air that has been breathed out by the animal in the system, you are not going to have any issues with uh, inaccuracy in pull mode, and you no longer have the requirement for a full seal on the cage, which means that the inaccuracies caused by leaks and what have you that plague legacy systems are not a factor with pull systems. Pull systems are methodologically much trickier to, to implement, but we have been very successful in doing so. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. For the full webinar, please see the link in the description. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.